Hold on to your butt. Welcome to episode 40 of the Civil War Breakfast Club podcast. As always, I am joined by Mary, a woman who is likely thinking of Oliver Otis Howard at this very moment. As usual, I am just Darren. What is up, Mary? God, you're not just Darren. And actually, shockingly, I'm not thinking of Oliver Otis yeah, Howard. Because so I've so had to have my mind on other things to do with the Civil War. Namely, the Iron Brigade. Oh, that's right. We're going to talk Iron Brigade. Let's be getting right into it. Well, I got sick of talking to you. So we decided to go to the bullpen and bring in our our friend Eric tonight. Eric Schleilein. He's an author. People know him from some great books we've read. The Dim White Light, which is a lot of people haven't read that one, but they should. And of course, Black Iron Mercy. It's a book that we had hosted on our book club. And we decided that what better person would we decide to have with us tonight than our friend Eric, who is an expert, a quasi-guru, as they say, of the <laughs> Iron Brigade. And so um, and so, if we're going to have him on. He's going to join us as we're going to talk about a lot of the colorful characters of the Civil War, Mayor. The Iron Brigade, I mean, they're... Um, well, they're they're iron. They're, they're when you think of the mm-hmm. when you think of the tough guys, you know, first regiment of the first division of the first brigade, the, right up, right on the top. These these guys are the ones who, um, when you think of Civil War combat, the real tough guys. You think of the Iron Brigade. So, welcome, Eric. Welcome to our silly little show. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Glad to be joining you in your silliness. <laughs> Try to be as silly as you. Nice cup. Whoa. Oh, nice. yeah. I saw it. Yep. Yeah. Well, I've got mine as well. Cup. Yep. I remember the so, so yep. we'll do that first. So, Mary, what are you drinking today? I am drinking a beer called Stand Down. <laughs> I was admittedly trying to find a beer that had a badger on it today, just because of Wisconsin, but this has a bear on it. But I thought the name Stand Down was pretty good because of how hard the Iron Brigade always fought. So I thought that was an appropriate one for tonight. And I'm drinking it out of, as I just showed you too, my Iron Brigade Gettysburg mug that I bought in Gettysburg like five years ago. Okay. Well, I'm drinking Treehouse Green, the great Treehouse in Massachusetts. I got a green because... It describes the soldiers of the of the Iron Brigade at the beginning, Mary. They were all green soldiers. We're going to talk about the second Wisconsin and all these guys about how they came through and they fought. And of course, I'm drinking it out of my Iron Brigade coffee mug, which is my favorite coffee mug because it's all the Iron Brigade. So what about yourself, Eric? What are you drinking today? I see a couple of coffee mugs back there you can pick from. I'm not. Those are all Disney mugs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're, we're staying away from those with, with what I have in my hand here. So uh, what else would I have? But, you know, the pride of New Glarus, Wisconsin, Spotted Cow. Nice. Outstanding. Yes. And uh, only in Wisconsin. So anybody that would like to enjoy one of these would have to come to Wisconsin to get one. Or have Smokey and the Bandit behavior going on. So I'll be drinking this straight from the bottle rather than... A Disney mug? That's okay. That's okay. That's okay. No, but I've, I've beamed the Spotted Cow. I was in Milwaukee a couple of years ago. It's good stuff. I know you can only get it there, so I had to get it while I was there. When in Rome, yeah, it's an ale. It's real mild. It's an easy beer to get down for anybody, who, mm. even people who don't really like beer. So. Oh. Very domestic, domestic. Now I have a no, reason it's, it's, to go to Wisconsin. Yeah. <laughs> Wisconsin's a great, Milwaukee's a great little city. It's a good place there. Oh, yeah. We, oh, and, and, you know, the big breweries kind of all shriveled away. Miller's still here, but there's a hundred small ones that have mm-hmm. grown up around. Nice. So, fantastic. Yeah. Mare's an IPA girl, but she does like she does like her her Miller Light and her uh, Labatt's Blue. Ew! So no, Labatt's Blue. No, 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 no. That's what I drank in my younger days. I've become. I'd like to think a little bit more refined. 
I think I had one once. I don't remember. So I think I did. (laughs) No, it's very, very bad. I I, I know I I, I said on a podcast one night, I'm like, I haven't drank Labatt Blue since I was 15 years old. (laughs) They were there. Definitely tough. You were probably a tough teenager, as was these men we're going to talk about tonight, Mary. That's called a segue. What I did there in the industry, that's what it's called a segue. So let's talk a little bit about what these guys were all about. So the Iron Brigade, we'll talk about that. They were not always known as the Iron Brigade, Mary. They were basically teenagers who signed up at the beginning of the war, Wisconsin, Indiana, later Michigan. And they were going to, and they're going to ultimately fight in the East. They all fought for different reasons like all everybody else. They're very patriotic folks, pride. The first one, first regiment, is going to be the second Wisconsin. They are going to be the, the, uh, established in June 11th of 1861. Now, they're going to be spread out from a bunch of different parts of Wisconsin. A lot of mining communities, lumbering places, Milwaukee, Racine. The great Oshkosh, Wisconsin, Mary, part of them. And they're going to be formed mm-hmm. of these small little companies like the Lacrosse the Light Guards and the Oshkosh Volunteers and the Grant County Giants and places like that. These small little groups, they're all going to get together. They are going to show up at a place called Camp Randall, and they are going to sign three-month enlistment papers. They'll be told they are now three-year enlistment papers when they got there. So Camp Randall in Madison, Wisconsin, Mary. It's the site today of Camp Randall Stadium where the Wisconsin Badgers play football and they get their heads kicked in by Michigan every year. <laughs> but that's okay. Yeah, <laughs> Our guest does not like that. <laughs> no. Why are we talking about this now? <laughs> but, uh, so, but, uh, but, you know, Governor Randall was when it happened at Camp Randall's name for Governor Randall. And when the second left, he sent them off with a a flourish, and I'll quote him now. He remains to give you a parting word as you go forth on your great mission. By the shedding of blood, atonement has always been made for great sins. This rebellion must be put down in blood, and treason punished by blood. You go forth not on any holiday errand, not on any Fourth of July excursion, but as men to perform great and urgent duties. Wow. Just weeks later, they were in a place called Manassas. Wow. You got to wonder if that kind of spurred them to become who they were because it, you know, you read so many stories of where these guys think they're going off on like an adventure where it's going to be over in a few weeks. And just that speech that Randall gives, I think is a little bit, you know, I think he's hinting, this is going to be a a hard fight. Well, Alexander Randall, be very patriotic guy. You know, there's no question he was. He's going to sign a guy named Colonel Park Coon as the first regimental commander. That won't last long. There'll be rumors that he's uh, a little too much spotted cow. Uh, rumors of alcoholism, so they remove him pretty pretty quickly. He gets transferred to the War Department. These guys are going to be trained really, really hard, and that's going to be a benchmark for the Iron Brigade that they'll eventually be called. These are hard guys, hard fighting, hard partying. There's a rumor that they attacked a brewery after hours one night. These are the type of guys, they're raw, but they're tough Wisconsin stock. These are the miners, the lumberjacks, the type of guys who are very patriotic. They like to fight in the type of guys you clearly want to have on your side as they head off to Washington to a pomp and circumstance on their way, every step along the way they're cheered. I also think it's important to, to look at or to try to look at how young men and boys viewed warfare in their day. There was no means of, of seeing the outcome of war. Any kind of depiction of war was generally propaganda, legions going into glory. They had no idea what, what it would happen when a, when a musket ball would hit the humorous at mm-hmm. high velocity or it's soft now whatever so yeah. as messy as it became i don't think any of them expected war to be so 
bloody. And I thought they just would, people would die in rows and like they did in paintings. Mm-hmm. They well, had they, photography. Well, they'd, they'd find out in Manassas soon later. So, you know, July 1861, they could place under General Urban McDowell. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's going to lead all these green recruits. And, and you know who them. ordered them up Henry House Hill? Who ordered the second up Henry House Hill? Mm-hmm. Well, it comes to Sherman. Sherman. Oh, that's yeah. right. I was waiting well, for Mary to jump in that, but Mary, yeah. Mary didn't, didn't he, but didn't Sherman, I know it was like a complete route for the union, but he, he made the most ground that day. Did he not? I think, I think he, were, he did better than a lot sure. of them did. Well, then there you battle. go. <laughs> Leave it to the well, second the, before well, the Iron Gate. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so you know, just, just, pitch, just pitch these guys to Eric's point. You know, you fast forward to July 20th, they make it to Manassas. And these guys have never really been home from away from home before. They're Midwestern guys, but now they're in this hot Virginia summer night. They've never seen battle to the point. They haven't seen the elephant, as they always say. They're tired. They're hot. They're nervous. They're sick. Impending. Yeah, they're right. Mm-hmm. They're everything. They're nervous about the impending attack. They're writing letters home. So the next day, the twenty-first of July, which is first Manassas or Battle of Bull Run, as some people like to say, the second Wisconsin finds himself in the left flank of McDowell's army. They're going to fight spread out from Matthews Hill all the way eventually to Henry Hill, to Eric's point about um, about Sherman. And this is, t- to his point, is when they really saw their first violence, their first everything they saw. There's reports of soldiers writing in their diaries that they were watching men's heads blown clean off. Just, just real horrific, horrific stories like that. And they were all new to firsthand battle. So when they finally did reach Henry Hill, for the first of many times, they run into the Stonewall Jackson Brigade, the 33rd Virginia, which is not the people you want to run into when, you, when you're in your first bar fight. They're going to hold that position right next to the 69th New York, the Irish Brigade guys. And they're just going to take heavy, heavy casualties. And they are going to fall back eventually. They're going to fall back. They talk about that eerie rebel yell. They're, here, they're hearing it for the first time, this rebel yell. When they find themselves getting ready to head back to Washington, you, and this is just the second Wisconsin, you're talking 23% casualties right there, right off the top. But you know what they did? They proved themselves to that spot that they were going to be hard fighters and that they didn't really back down because they went up against, the ironically, the iron the rebels had at that time. Uh, and they perceived that they represented themselves very, very well for just that one regiment. They did. And um, you know, the, uh, the butt whooping that commenced had a lot of people writing home and telling, telling folks how it was. Here's a, an embarrassed private, Henry Allen, would write in his journal. The retreat was one of the most ignominious that ever happened to American soldiers, and I hope that it will never occur again. The road for miles was strewn with artillery, muskets, and the implements of war. Also a great deal of ammunition, shovels, axes, and baggage wagons loaded with provisions and clothing, all estimated at about a quarter of a million, which fell into rebels' hands. That's uh, a bad first day. Well, that was a song about that. Have you had a bad day? That was a, that was written about the Bull <laughs> oh, actually. And um, <laughs> it's such a bad so, song too. <laughs> you know, it, it was. That's just crazy. But you know what you do when you get your butt kicked? You go back to the drawing board and you train, right? So what do they do? They go back to Washington D.C. and they spend the next nine months rigorously training. This is when they they sport that 1858 black tall hardy hat which is going to be their calling card. The training is going to pay off huge later, but they are going to have a really, really tough summer mini camp for a while. They're really going to get pounded. So by the time they get to October 1st, 1861, they're going to start to get some reinforcements. The 7th Wisconsin is going to show up in Washington. They're going to get placed in that brigade along with the 2nd and the 6th Wisconsin, as well as the 19th Indiana, 
under a guy named Rufus King, and they'll become King's Wisconsin Brigade. Unfortunately, Indiana did get in there, unfortunately. We'll <laughs> have to deal with that. You know, Rufus King, interesting dude, you know, born in New York City, 1814, the grandson of, well, Rufus King. He was a guy who was a Massachusetts <laughs> delegate of the Continental Congress and the Constitutional Convention. U.S. military, 1833, fourth in his class. Unlike a lot of the guys, he didn't really graduate fourth in his class. That's why Howard graduated. He was, but there was not a, but the thing that was funny about this. (laughs) There's my Howard reference. Uh I did it. Okay, that's your one. No more. Everybody drink. (laughs) There you go. Eric caught on. But he hadn't, he really had no real superstars with him in his class. It was like the no-name class. There was nobody big with him, which is kind of strange. He's going to become a newspaper editor after he graduates. 1839, he gets appointed the general of the New York State Militia by a guy named William Seward, Mary. He's going, to, he's going to present him. So he's the guy who's going to uh, put him in. It is a small he, world. Yep. It is. 18, 1845, he gets gets word of this something called Spotted Cows. He moves to Wisconsin. He's going to take that. Path. And he'll be part, he will be part owner of the, of the Milwaukee Gazette. Do you know, Eric, you probably know this. Uh, that probably Ru- not. Rufus King played in the first ever organized baseball game in Wisconsin in 1859. The very first not, game. I did not know that. Oh, I might have known that. I don't. It was on. It was on the site of where Marquette, Marquette University is now. Now, the one thing we don't know is if he hit a home run. If old Bernie Brewer came sliding down that slide, <laughs> now, yes. now, I'm going to say he probably did, because the tradition yeah. has to start somewhere. But we do know if he played Cleveland, they probably would have won. So we'll just we'll go with that. Could we not but take shots at my team tonight, please? Okay, fine. But that's <laughs> true. He, he, he the Indians. He likes the Indians. Yeah. But um, but he that that is true. Though. He played in the first ever organized baseball game in the state of Wisconsin. Rufus King. He played in it. So That's pretty very cool. cool. When the war breaks out, he is going to be appointed basically a general of the Wisconsin militia, and he is going to get his Wisconsin brigade. Although he's got that 19th Indiana, and there's that story with Randall's kind of pissed because that fifth Wisconsin gets transferred out, and he gets stuck with an Indiana regiment. He's got the makings of a really good team. Rufus King does. Now we'll talk more about him and how he's going to kind of disappear and phase out. Going into that right guy at the right time probably to help get them trained i would imagine yeah what what are your thoughts on king eric as being um, their commander to begin you know yeah good good organizer at first mm-hmm. and he got the right people in and the, there were a lot of people a lot of officers weeded out throughout uh the whole process before they actually saw combat not not the second at Bull Run. I'm talking mm-hmm. about once uh, the Iron Brigade was organized. We'll, we'll call them the Black Hats until we did from the Iron Brigade. Yeah, don't but, give away the surprise. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, what do you want to call them? We can't call them Gibbons. There's still, there's, yeah. there's Kings still Brigade. The, yeah, King, still King's King. Wisconsin Brigade at this point. So well, King's Wisconsin Brigade, you know, <laughs> they were well organized. And the real, you know, it's hard to really say about what effect King had on them because I think so much of what, what they became came later. Yeah, I know who you mean and we are definitely going to talk about that, dude. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So, so Wisconsin Brigade, so like I said, he's assigned to Irvin McDowell. It's going to be in the first corps at the time. They're going to get redesignated that third corps because they're going to find themselves under John Polk, Army of the Virginia and King's Division. So we talked before as we headed to Second Manassas here about how some of the things had changed. You know, he's going to eventually he's going to end up. Well, you can talk about the general you want to talk about there. <laughs> you, know, you know you want to. So. <laughs> They're gonna... so, can, can we go back to just a moment and yeah, talk about the organization of the 6th? Of course, yeah. yeah. Because yeah. 
they were, th- this is an interesting, they waited. Okay. So before we talk about your general, we're going to talk about the captain. We're going to talk about Captain Rufus Doss, who yes. was 22 years old and a Marietta College graduate. Uh, when he was in Wisconsin on business and the war broke out, Lincoln called for some volunteers and he uh, he decided rather than go back to his home state, he would form his own company right here in Boston, Wisconsin. Here's a quote from him. With the proclamation of the president came the announcement that the quota of the state of Wisconsin would only be one small infantry regiment of 780 men. It seemed quite evident that only by prompt action I might secure what was then termed the glorious privilege of aiding and crushing crushing the rebellion. So he went about the business of forming a company in Boston, drawing up a pledge and gathering volunteers. April 25th of 1861, 48 signers were secured as a result of my first day's work, he said. On April 30th, 100 men met in Boston's Langworthy's Hall to organize the company. Dawes was elected captain, which was obviously no surprise, and the company adopted the name the Lemonware Minutemen, after a local sleepy river and spirits were high and excitement level was like through the roof. You know, everybody was just ready to mm-hmm. go. So in early May, Dawes wrote his sister in Ohio. He said, I have been so wholly engrossed with my work for the last week, or I should have responded sooner to your question. Are you going? If a kind providence and President Lincoln will permit, I am. I am a captain of as good and true a band of patriots as ever as ever rallied under the Star Spangled Banner. So you can hear it in him, you know, that he's he's ready. He wants to go. Now, shortly, the word came that the company was to be mustered into the seventh witch, but no solid date for such an event to occur was given. In a letter dated June 10th, he wrote, First six regiments are now accepted by the general government, and I expect to be ordered into quarter. He waited patiently and anxiously. He's still waiting. In the meantime, his recruits went about their daily lives, scattered about all of Juneau County, causing concern in the captain. What am I going to do if they call me up right now? I can't go get it. So to his sister, Dawes wrote, I fear they will order us into camp without giving me time to collect my men or recruit for vacancies. To ensure he'd have the 83 men required to report, he initiated another recruitment drive on on June 29th. So it's June now. And he's still, he's got a company formed. And they're like, you know, dragging their feet at the state level. Who knows what? I mean, that had to have been painful. Yeah. Like you're trying to get something going. He's clearly passionate about it too, right? Like that seems to be the one thing about these men is they're all like fired up, ready to go. They all, you know, well, and then about, about Dawes is that he, he, for someone who is kind of, you know, he, you know, obviously everybody knows the story is a grandson of William Dawes, who, you know, rode with Paul Revere that night in Boston. The last, last two, the last two, two guys rode around the city of Boston without beer in their lap, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but, but he's a guy who was very well-spoken. He was very witty. So we'll have some, we'll have some quotes later on with him about how well-spoken he was, but you can see how he would have been a favorite, even as a captain in his company mm-hmm. and how much as he rose through the, the regimental ranks, getting to the, the eventually the regimental commander of the sixth Wisconsin, how people are going to really fight for him. And we'll, we'll see that at Gettysburg here in a little while. Mm-hmm. What, what an amazing salesman he must've been to be in town on business and say, okay, I, I, I'm done doing what I'm doing here. And Hey, come join me and fight. And he's the one raising the, 
the company among strangers or, you know, people he does business with. That's, yeah. That says a lot about a 22-year-old man. Mm-hmm. You know? On June 29th, a very welcome telegram came from W.H. Watson, military secretary of the state of Wisconsin. Captain R.R. R. Dawes, you can board your company at expense of the state at not more than $2 and a half a week until further orders. It is possible that you may be wanted for the 6th Regiment. So more than two months now after organizing at Langworthy Hall, the company, in compliance with orders, they took the cars from Madison and joined the 6th Wisconsin Volunteer Infantry Regiment. And they were able to do so because several other companies failed to report who was supposed to be there. Oh, wow. Probably for the same reason. They couldn't get everybody together. And at least Captain Dawes had some foresight to re-recruit. So there were 94 men who left for uh, Washington. um, Oh, wow. uh, In Company K. It's going to be easy to recruit when you're born on the 4th of July, though. That's going to be easy, too. <laughs> right? Born? I mean, she was born on the yeah. 4th of July, just he like Tom Cruise in that movie. He was. Born the yes. Yeah, he'll be, probably uh, ended up having the same attitude, too. He, if he, if he's, you know, he survived, obviously, Gettysburg. And we'll talk about that. But he was right, right for his 24th birthday, he charged that railroad cut. You think about the age of these guys. And we'll, we'll talk more about some of these other young guys, too. But, yeah, that's a true story. 1838. That's it just seems like the attitude of a lot of these guys that are going into what is going to become the Iron Brigade, especially, you know, you starting with Randall's speech to them, you know, and you come with somebody like Dawes, who's extremely patriotic, you know, just like Randall was. I think I'm beginning to see more and more why these guys fought with the just the fierceness that they did. Like not that like other all other men fought like that in the Civil War, too. But there's just something about the Iron Brigade that I'm starting to piece it together more that they had a, quite a few patriotic men with them that were just hard fighters to begin with and knew that it was going to be a long war, I think. Well, what do you think? Uh, okay, so sliding right back in. Well, so talk about John Gibbon now. Okay. The job, John Gibbon's going to take over. Now you can talk about his background a little bit. But he's going to basically be that guy to, after Rufus King, to really take that mantle to build on that foundation that King did to put that next level of this Iron Brigade together. He's the one who really takes care of it at this point. Yeah. So John Gibbon, anybody who has seen his picture knows that this guy is like badass. So he's born April 20th, 1827 in Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia. But he is actually raised in Charleston, South Carolina, because his father works for the US Mint, where he basically analyzes the quantity of gold, silver and all that stuff in a coin, probably similar there to what um, Sherman did for the gold rush, Uncle Blingy. Metal, metal. Oh, I can't say it. Metallurgy. 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 Actually, originally was Sherman the original guy who recognized that the the gold in was 1949 was actual gold. That's why we call him Uncle Blingy. In 1842, Gibbon is appointed to the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, and he actually has to repeat his entire year because he was just like whatever. He he's told you got to repeat your entire year. After that, his military career is defined by very rigid discipline, as we're going to see when he uh, takes over command of the Iron Brigade or the Black Hat Brigade at this point. So he graduates middle of his class, 1847. Two of his classmates are Ambrose Burnside and A.P. Hill, who both have been mentioned quite a few times on this podcast. He fights in the Mexican-American War. And in 1854, he returns to West Point, where he taught artillery 
tactics, and he wrote a book called The Artillerist Manual. So he takes over the Iron Brigade, and he is the one that will actually give them the uniform that we very much associate them wearing. And the men, when they got this uniform, they didn't like it at first. Because it was just, it it set them apart from everybody else. And one of the things they had were these like white leggings that were part of it. And the men didn't like them for a couple reasons. One, they're white leggings and they were uncomfortable. And two, they actually had to pay for them themselves. So there there was one day when Gibbon woke up and his pet horse had white leggings. on yes. and spent the rest of his life trying to figure out who put the leggings on his horse yeah didn't you tell uh, us last night leggings, that he went to a reunion le- and he asked yeah somebody? He, went, he went to he went to a, an iron brigade reunion years later met by the doorman he told him that he was there to find the man who put the leggings on his horse yeah it was a joke but yeah you know, the biggest problem with the leggings were they were just impossible to keep clean yeah they were white but anytime you're on the march the guy in front of you is kicking up dust all over your leggings so And it's going to be Gibbon. He trains them and he does like drilling, like constantly drills them. But he also like gives them a system where they could get like a 24 hour pass from camp for good behavior. And he discovered that this made them really well behaved because if you couldn't get out of camp for 24 hours to go do whatever in the in the town then he found the soldiers had better morale you know they were better moods because the one thing that they liked to do was apparently steal fences to make their fires out of and their tents (laughs) and gibbon would make them rebuild the fences if he found them doing that but he discovered that if he gave them 24-hour passes they were less likely to do this so he drills them like he's a badass and he drills them really really hard but he is in my opinion, I think he's one of the reasons they become the fight, like one of the reasons they're going to become the fighting force they do. Like, I think they've already had it instilled in them because of the speech that, you know, Randall's speech. And then like, you have someone like Rufus Dawes with them, but then you have Gibbon coming along, who's another piece in this puzzle to why these guys become such hard fighters as we see at like battles like Antietam, uh, before that South Mountain, and later on Gettysburg, and even at Fredericksburg, too. I think a lot of it, too, is, you know, he's this is a guy from North Carolina or Carolinas. Mm-hmm. His family had slaves, and he's fighting yeah. against that. And I, I think that goes a long way, especially against a very patriotic group like like these hard-fighting yeah. Westerners. Well, as soon I, as I think that, he found out the Civil War had broke out, he went and said, know, I'm fighting for the North. Like, he and his brothers fought for the South. And he was, I think. I think it's important to know what's going on at this time. This isn't Gibbon taking over the, the brigade and then, okay, let's turn and go with the army and fight. Because mm-hmm. th- that didn't happen. Yeah. There's a lot of time here now. And we can talk about, Darren, if you want to talk about what's going on while that is. While Gibbon is training these men. Well, the peninsula, the peninsula is going on, and they're going to end up basically staying with John Pope anyway, is what mm-hmm. they're going to really do. And so they're going to kind of get away from that whole peninsula thing. They're going to end up staying with Pope. They're going to end up being the 4th Brigade of the 1st Division of the 3rd Corps Army of Virginia. And they're going to end up with them while they're drilling. They're going to end up as that whole thing kind of plays itself out with the peninsula. They're going to end up, as we could segue kind of into 2nd Manassas here, August 28th, 1862, is when that whole thing goes on. And and this is really when a lot of these other brigades now, even these other regiments are really going to start to see fighting for the first time. Don't forget, it was really just the second who, who really saw fighting at this point. You didn't have yes. the other ones. And so this is the proving ground for, you know, the 6th and the 7th and the 19th Indiana. 24th Michigan hasn't come yet, but this is still their first time they're going to see it. So they'll end up with the Battle of Bronner's Farm, also known as Battle of Gainesville. This is interesting because this is where, you know, Rufus King has that epileptic attack this day. 
and he gets taken off the dance floor. Mm -hmm. He's gone. And once again, it's going to be these Wisconsinites bumping into Stonewall Jackson again. So Stonewall Jackson is going to be, he's going to see, if we flashback, Mary, to our second Manessas episode, again, you've probably forgotten all about it, but that's okay. I'll remind you. Okay. <laughs> Jackson's going to observe these Federals. This is going to be Gibbons guys now. So they're going to be along that Warrington Turnpike. Jackson is just going to make himself known. He's going to brazenly and recklessly expose himself, <laughs> as they say, in full view of the Feds. He's going to be, be arrested for that now. He probably would be. <laughs> lucky, lucky there wasn't a school nearby. You know, <laughs> school Jackson, you know? <laughs> Old Warrington Turnpike Elementary. You know, oh he's riding on the ridge line. Just look at me. Look at me. Because, you know, it's, I guess he's still Hall Jackson. So 630, the Rebs open up their artillery on these people. So Gibbons is going to re- um, is going to Gibbons is going to respond pretty quickly. One of the things they're going to have is they're going to have battery B of the U.S. artillery with them. So they're going to have a pretty good artillery. While this is going on, Gibbon is going to ask for help. So he's going to blow the conch shell to bring everybody else together. Okay. So yes. you're going to, he, he's going to, that's exactly what happened. Don't look it up. That's what happened. So <laughs> he's going to send Frank Haskell. We'll talk about here in a little bit to get the second Wisconsin to help. So the second Wisconsin is going to be asked to come back again and fight. And this is going to be their second major, major battle. The second Wisconsin at this point is going to be under the command of a guy named Edgar O'Connor, 400 men. They're going to be told to take out the guns, but they're going to be told to do it quietly. So they're going to be very, very quiet, right? <laughs> and they're going, to, they're going to work themselves up and attack those rebel guns. They don't realize that they've got 400 guys. Jackson's got 800, and they're just looking at him going, we can see you. So they're, they're going to start attacking them. They're going to get hit by a guy named William Baylor from Stonewall Jackson's Brigade. It's going to ultimately be an absolute slugfest. They're going to be 80 yards apart. That's all they're going to be. Gibbon's going to be outnumbered two to one, 80 yards apart. You're going to see the 19th Indiana get involved now. The 7th Wisconsin is going to come. But what's going to happen ultimately is the Rebs are going to get reinforced by Rich Yule. This is when he gets hit and he loses his leg. Mary's favorite Isaac Trimble is going to show up as well. <laughs> And this the battle's going to end up sort of as a draw, right? A nighttime's mm. going to come, it's going to end it. But the second Wisconsin, mm. again, is going to get hit hard. They're going to have 64% casualties at Bronner's Farm again. They're getting that reputation of that prize fighter who just gets this ass kicked but stays up. He gets blinded, he gets bruised. So these people are going, holy shit, look, getting a real reputation of people who just brawl. I think on the on the right side, I think it's on the right side of the line. The sixth was there too. They were slugging it out with Isaac Trimble's Georgians, yeah, North Carolinians, yeah. and Alabamans for yeah. over an hour. Like just firing at each other back and forth. I, that's even hard to imagine in today's world that that could even happen without somebody backing off or charging or deciding, hey, mm-hmm. this is a bad idea. It's going to be almost their calling card as we see these late, these future battles. They're going to get to the point where they're going to see almost if you right in their face for even fire on them now. So this is going to, they're going to get the reputation of, of these guys are just these hard fighting, hard charging dudes. They're the guy at the bar you don't want to screw with, right? That's what I because, was thinking you know, about them. Like, they're, you, they're like, you know, no matter the how many times, no matter how still many have that times reputation you hit the guy. Oh yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I've seen Bernie Brewer. I'm not going to screw with yeah. him. You know? right. you know, but, but then a guy you just see and you know he's just going to be tough. You know, So as these campaigns continue, they're going to be asked upon to do more and more and more. So look forward now to Self Mountain of the Maryland campaign. So as we know, without getting into too many details about Manassas, it doesn't turn out too well for the Union. 
Mm-hmm. You know, John Pulp gets kicked in the butt. It's a really bad, embarrassing situation. The union's going to ultimately end up with George McClellan coming back, much to the chagrin of the American Congress, but Abraham Lincoln wants him. September 4th, 1862, Robert E. Lee is going to decide to invade Maryland. He's feeling completely invincible right now. Just he's on top of the world. It's like he's getting ready to play the Indians in a big baseball game. He's no chance I'm going to lose. I'm feeling really, really good. Could we not so, take shots at my team? <laughs> Anyway, but I, I shouldn't. I know, I know. It's no, it's actually, fine. No, I just, I just want to make a point that the last time the Indians won the World Series, there was still Civil War veterans alive. Yeah, I think John Gibbon was still fighting. I think, as a matter probably. Of fact, but, <laughs> but, but, but this is Robert. This is Robert E. Lee is going to be kind of is going to be starting to show his. I don't want to say arrogance, but it certainly is confidence. So mm-hmm. he's going to he's going to divide his army. And we're going to see this in future battles, how he's going to do this. And he wants to capture Harper's Ferry, the garrison there. But he's going to send the other half to cover those three gaps at South Mountain, Fox Gap, Turner's Gap, and Cranton's Gaps. But he makes that big mistake. What was that mistake, Mayor? Uh, he dropped the orders. He dropped Special Order oh, 191. The cigar. The cigar. So he dropped Special Order 191 on September 13th, which basically tells the Union Army that the battle plan. So now McClellan knows that leads divide and they can be beat in detail. So McClellan, uh, he'll probably sleep on it. Or something. Uh, it took, a little, t- took a little time. Took a little time to, to digest the order. Okay. Sixteen hours later. <laughs> Good but, lord! Jeez. Oh, you know, I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it. That's... Well, the, I think the car wouldn't start. It took a little while. They had to get a new battery. So he, <laughs> but he, he did finally. He did finally get going. So he does finally go to South Mountain. Gibbon's brigade is going to be sent from Washington on the fifth of September, and they're going to be sent to come out to Frederick. They're going to arrive in Frederick on the twelfth of September. Gibbon's men, along with the rest of the First Corps, on nine fourteen in the morning is going to find themselves at South Mountain. Mm-hmm. And they're going to be ordered up that national turnpike. They're going to reach the town of Bolivar by right around noon, 1230, give or take. And they're ordered to basically outflank the rebels holding that mountain pass. They're going to march up, t- up that Tabor Road. While this is all going on, this is when Jesse Reno is attacking on Fox Gap. That's kind of going on. It's kind of yeah. simultaneous with this. But Gibbon's Brigade is going to de- is, is detached from the rest of the 1st Corps. And they're kind of sent back down the mountain again to just kind of go back and await orders. So they finally get their orders on the 14th, and they're going back up the turnpike again. They're going back and forth. They're going back and forth. Now they go back again, and now they're going to hit the rebels on, uh, on Turner's Gap. This is Alfred Colquitt's guys, Alabamans and Georgians, people like that. They're going to set them up, and they're going to put the 19th Indiana on the right of the road and the 7th Wisconsin on their left. And they're going to take parts of the 2nd and the 7th Wisconsin, and the 6th Wisconsin, and they're going to put them up front sort of as skirmishers. And they're going to take the rest of the 2nd and the 6th back is kind of that second battle line. And they're going to have it, that Battery B as well with them. They're going to attack uh, Battery B. is going to be under control of James Stewart, who's having a wonderful life. <laughs> Same guy, pretty sure it is. But, Probably. But the, well, yeah. He would later be a general and fly planes in World War II. Yeah. 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 So, <laughs> he would, he would. He certainly would. You know? yeah. But, but, um, but the, the federal skirmish line is going to get he's going to push back the Rebs initially. They're going to get supported by the Seventh Wisconsin and the Nineteenth Indiana. This is that Seventh Wisconsin is going to take that heavy fire from those Georgians on those flanks. They're going to take the Second Wisconsin. They're going to move them up in support of the Nineteenth and the Seventh. Nineteenth, of course, is led by the great Solomon Meredith. We'll be talking about here in a little while. Yeah. And they're going to push those Rebs back again. They're not going to back off. So you got the Sixth and the Seventh Wisconsin is pouring heavy fire on these Rebs, just pounding them, pounding them. They're going to push them. Back from the defenses, they built a bunch of stone walls. Ironically, along <laughs> these, um, 
yeah. along this place. They're going to push the Rebs away from those stone walls. So you're talking four hours of fighting. The Rebs still hold on to Turner's Gap by us by that much. They're holding on by their thumbs at this point. It's going to get dark. Midnight's going to come. And like so many of these battles, night is going to bail out the Rebs. Gibbon's brigade is finally going to get relieved at this point, but they're going to take huge losses again. And when you read the casualty numbers from some of these these Iron Brigade-ish battles. You know, the second Wisconsin actually got off lightly, but the sixth lost 90 guys. The seventh lost 40%. They lost 147 of 375. The 19th Indiana lost 53. So you lost 318 guys, and they almost pushed them off. They pretty much did. They really weakened them at that point. But this is where the legend of the nickname comes from. And Eric was telling us last night how much he loves this legend <laughs> about this about this nickname. Story. <laughs> Yeah, it's a little corny, but it um, there's got to be some truth to it. So mm-hmm. at some point during the battle, General McClellan turned to General Hooker and asked him, what are those troops fighting on the turnpike? And Hooker replied, General Gibbon's brigade of Western men. They must be made of iron, said McClellan. <laughs> By the eternal, they are iron, said Hooker. If you had seen them at Bull Run as I did, you would know them to be iron. Why, General Hooker, they fight equal to the best troops in the world, is how it supposedly went down. That's how guys talk, right? Yeah. I, yeah, I can well, tell you there was more colorful language in that conversation, especially from yeah, Hooker. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping. You know, yeah, it's it's like, like, I mean, the story probably went verbally a lot different, but you write it down, yeah. lines and men, and you make it more flowery. Regardless, at some point, Hooker and Mac have this holy shit moment. Like, these guys, look at these guys. The reputation has already preceded them. The Second had their had first Manassas. The rest of them had second Manassas. Now these guys are showing their medal again in South Mountain, and they're not backing down. Let's um, step back a moment now. They already have a reputation just from drill. They were guarding Washington while the Peninsular Campaign was going on. And, you know, a lot of these men were mad about it. They're, you got to remember that in 1860, Wisconsin and Indiana were still considered West to be the Western states. These yeah. were Western men. The soldiers themselves were convinced that they were being kept out of the fight because they were from where they were from. They drilled and drilled and drilled and drilled and drilled. And so this is from General Irvin McDowell. This is before they ever saw combat, uh, other than the second. Many times I have shown them to officers of distinction as specimens of American volunteer soldiers and asked them if they have ever anywhere seen, even among the picked soldiers of Royal and Imperial Guards, a more splendid body of men. And I have never had an affirmative answer. That's very high praise coming yeah. from, you know. So they had a reputation for, for moving on the parade ground unlike anybody else, just at an elite level. There were companies, Company E of the 6th, supposedly when that company would fire as one, it would sound as one. Oh, wow. Yeah. So now, all of a sudden, they're on a the turnpike going up that hill, and they've already had a week of showing they can do what they what they've been trained to do yeah and uh they're showing mcclellan yeah this is what we waited for private hugh talty was saint about being left out of the fighting you know somebody's got it in their skull this is in an irish accent (laughs) somebody's got it in their skull that we western men are to sit out the whole scrap if i ever find out who that is i'm going to show the bugger up close that we can fight better than most that's Hugh talty about you know what else you know what else it probably taught mcclellan the value of training in drilling. Don't you think that as he gets criticized later on for a lot of this stuff, you see these these Western guys and you knew the training they had and yeah. what kind of metal they would do. 
it had to have crept. We don't know this for sure, but it had to have crept in his head because he was a big training and development type of guy. What this is going to do, it's going to help set up that Antietam battle. That's going to be the next thing right around the corner. You know, not a lot of people fought harder than this Iron Brigade, which we can now officially call them now, by the way, yep. the Iron Brigade. So we've now called them the Iron Brigade. Within a couple of weeks, they had embraced it and it was already out. So Yeah. yeah. I mean, some of the, the great nicknames, you know, the, the Iron Brigade is certainly the Bucktails. There's a lot of great ones that, that came out of this war, but the Iron Brigade is the one you think about. So a couple of weeks later, we'll fast forward, actually a couple days later, fast forward to, uh, to Antietam, Sharpsburg. So the Iron Brigade is, finds himself again spearheading this early morning attack in Miller's Cornfield right off the bat. They're going to move from their camp at a place called the Parfenberger Farm. Once again, they're going to be asked to go with Stonewall Jackson. Facing the team's best pitcher, you, you throw your ace. That's kind of what's going on with this at this point. So the reputation for these guys is starting to show not only on the Union side, but also on the Confederate side. They're starting to realize when they see these people that they're fighting against real Union guys. Because that reputation back then was the Confederates were much you know, harder fighting people versus the Union. This was kind of proving them wrong. Second Wisconsin and the sixth Wisconsin are going to be in the lead, where the 19th Indiana and the seventh Wisconsin, they're going to follow, but they're going to kind of get sent right. They're going to be heading towards the Dunker Church, heading towards those West Woods. They'll push through the uh, Miller's Cornfield. The fighting the cornfield against John Bill Hood's guys, and these are the guys who are all pissed because they missed breakfast that morning. They're always getting sick. You know, they're cooking breakfast. And they're like, oh, I got to fight. So these, these Texans are all upset. But they're going to get in a fight right off the bat. The Iron Brigade is going to get pushed back pretty quickly, but the 19th Indiana. They're going to keep fighting on that on those Westwoods. They're going to they're going to go against William Wofford's guys. They're going to push them back pretty strong. So this is going to be that back and forth, back and forth that's going to really be going on. The 19th Indiana is going to get attacked by rebel reinforcements. The commander of the 19th at this point is a guy named Alloy Bachman. He never pronounced his first name. I think that sounds about right. <laughs> He's going to get mortally wounded. He's going to be replaced by a guy named Captain William Dudley. Okay, it's 19 years old. 19. Oh my God. Ambi- He's ambitious. He's in charge of the nine. He's gonna be put in charge of the 19th Indiana. Okay, 19 year old kid. He's gonna push the Rebs back. Eventually, the Iron Brigade is gonna fall back at the Poffenberger Farm. But after the battle, this Dudley. Okay, you know he he writes. He, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna quote now. In making the charge and retiring, our colors fell three times. The bears severely wounded. The attack all vied in the performance of their duty, and too much praise cannot be awarded for the non commissioned officers for their gallant effort. 19. 19. Yeah. That's right. Uh, okay. That's impressive. Wow. I mean, <laughs> now he's going to get promoted to, uh, to Lieutenant Colonel. He's going to lose a leg at Gettysburg and that's going to be the end of him. But this goes to show the talent these guys have in their system that are going to be coming up as they go through these battles. I, oh, you know, that whole story with Dudley always impressed me that he has to take over as a captain, a regiment in mid battle. Mm-hmm. He's able to rally his 19th Indiana to a point. Yeah, you know, they're and, all and then, good, and they all get wounded at some point. <laughs> they do, yeah. but for yeah. him, for him to that age, because at that age, for him to take that credit and deflect it out to the other officers is a guy who speaks very. He's very mature for his age. I, that's, there's a lot of guys who are young. We talked about about Rufus Dawes and guys like that. We'll talk about Henry Bergwin here in a little while. But that one, that one's the, has always been the top for me about a kid that age doing that. So pretty cool yeah there's a story which depicts the fog of battle and its aftermath i have trouble telling this story so if i get misty yeah whatever no worries it involves two prominent citizens of fond du lac wisconsin there's edward bragg and edwin brown they have similar names you know so i can see confusion anyway both served with the sixth 
One day after the Battle of Antietam, a message from a sergeant of the regiment sent via the Wisconsin State Telegraph Company reached Mrs. Bragg. Quote, your husband was shot yesterday. I will send him home by express. Now, word passes quickly in small towns. And when it reached Ruth Brown, Edwin's wife, she rushed to be with the new widow. Plans for memorial services were made. Delegate was sent to Chicago to bring home Bragg's body. Four days later, however, a new message arrived via telegram, this time from the delegate in Chicago. Body of Captain Edwin Brown, instead of Bragg, will be home tomorrow. Chicago Times reports Bragg wounded in arm. Two days later, a letter from Lieutenant Colonel Bragg arrived at the Browns' home. He was a good soldier, a brave and chivalrous gentleman, and above all, he cherished a fond love for his home and the domesticities this cruel war has severed. Believe me, madam, the regiment deeply mourns his loss, and his brother officers will long cherish this memory, and through me, express to you your kindest and heartfelt sympathies in your bereavement. Oh, wow. People definitely don't like that anymore, that's for sure. Wow. But just like you imagine being the like the wife of Bragg and getting word that your husband's been killed, and then it's, it's the other, the and then now. it's the and other now you guy. You got to go the other way around. So like, Bragg wow. ended up being a, a brigadier general. He was born in New York, where he was admitted to the bar in 1848. He came west to practice law in Fond du Lac. He was uh, severely wounded in the arm at Antietam. He would be injured again at Chancellorsville, having his foot broken by a horse, and would miss the Gettysburg campaign while convalescing. That would propel somebody else into stardom in a place called the Railroad Company. Wow. But Bragg would be promoted to Brigadier General on June 25th, 64, and be in command of the Iron Brigade from then, or from June of 64 until February of 65, when he would be promoted. He was a Democrat. He would serve in Congress for three terms, and then as ambassador to Mexico in the Cleveland administration, and he would die in Fond du Lac. In, on June 20th, 1912. Wow, he lived a long life. Yeah, I did. A lot of stories. Wow, sure. that's a gr- uh, thank you for telling that story. That's a really... It's not really that long of a life, was it? Uh, oh, yeah, I didn't say when he was born. But... I hear 1912 well, after the he Civil was born War. In thir- think... He was born in yeah, 1387. He right. <laughs> <laughs> fought under Rob Roy. Yeah. So... Okay, but, you know, so... <laughs> I was going to say, as as you can start seeing these stories, these these people dying now, is you can start to see kind of the, the armor kind of getting hit a little bit. They're taking their dings, right? They're going full speed into these battles and it's starting to show a little bit. So as we go a little forward here to the Battle of Fredericksburg, which we talked about before, now they find themselves part of Abner Doubleday's division in John Reynolds' first corps. In Fredericksburg, their job is a, is a little bit different. Their job is primarily to protect the Union left south of the town. They're not going to mm-hmm. Murray's Heights or any of that stuff. They're going to be in that southern part. Their ranks are less, and they're starting to show the effects of that hard fighting over mm-hmm. going back to Bronner's Farm and going to first and you know second Manassas, and uh, especially in Tatum, they're going to have to be reinforced. So they're they're going to be getting a, a new regiment. The Twenty Fourth Michigan is going to be added to at this at this time. Mm-hmm. If you are a new regiment and a new soldier, and you're assigned to the Iron Brigade. That's quite a challenge. That's that's being promoted to the A team right off the bat. Mm-hmm. So they're going to have to show themselves. So December twelfth, eighteen sixty-two, they're going to the Iron Brigade is going to is going to cross those those pontoons across the Rappahannock River. That's deployed. And they're going to get deployed next to George Meade's division, and they're going to attack AP Hill's uh, division again of Jackson's corps. It's always Jackson these guys. So, so December thirteenth, this, yeah, is, the, this is the part of Fredericksburg that nobody ever talks about either. Is what Meade right. does here. 
breaking. Well, we ain't going to talk much about meat, Mary. So don't get excited. I know, but I'm just so so <laughs> the so, armor so, gates so, there. <laughs> the, the summer, the summer, the summer thirteenth, eighteen sixty-two. This is going to be a mead-free conversation. Definitely Howard-free. But Solomon, Mer- Solomon Meredith is going to be uh, in charge of the Iron Brigade at this point. He's, again, of the 19th Indiana. And he's going to be ordered into those woods to attack Jeb Stewart. Now, Jeb Stewart's up there. He's got dismounted cavalry, and they're firing artillery into the ranks. So the 24th Michigan is going to be new, and they're eager to show they belong. So they're going to be put in the front along with the 7th Wisconsin. I always imagine it to be like that scene at the end of Glory with the 54th Mass, yeah. where you feel like, okay, we're new. This is, the, we're, this is you know, we're in the, the big the big leagues here. We're going to go first. Rufus Dawes is asked about it later, and he says, this is one of my favorite Rufus, Rufus Dawes quotes. He says, speaking to the 24th Michigan, they were anxious to go to the front. We were resting on our hard-earned laurels, so we, gen- we were generally willing that they should go first. And so, so he's basically saying, you know what? Knock yourself After up. you. Yeah, yes. Yes. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> and so, right. And so there's so right. much in that quote because he's also giving themselves credit for what they did. And he, there's so many onion levels to, for that quote. But he's like, be my guest. So um, they're going to go up there. They're going to clear the woods. They're going to help set up a defensive front. Doubleday, ironically, is going to replace Meredith on the spot at this point because he thinks he's going too slow. And he's going to replace him with Lysander Cutler. We talked a little bit last night. He's going to get restored after the battle. It's not going to be not going to be long, but the Iron Brigade is going to get up there and they're going to spend that December thirteenth night basically freezing because they can't light fires, they can't go anywhere. They're told to hold their position while they're getting hit with rebel artillery crossfire. They're told just to basically sit. They're going to sit. No, there. thank you. And, yeah, but they're going to be they're going to be spared though that massacre that the Irish Brigade is going to deal with later on yep, and the yeah. other guys hookers. So this is the one time where they kind of get a little break, mm-hmm. you know, where sometimes, you know, Lucy doesn't pull the football away. You know, that's kind of <laughs> what happens to them okay. in this one. So, yeah. so, so they, they get to, they get to be cold, but they get to be, they get to avoid the carnage of that. But again, now you've got another regiment coming in who is trying to prove themselves to be worthy of this iron brigade nickname to show the reputation, the pride they all have with each other. Yeah. The, uh, they arrived, the Michigan boys. They busted mostly Wayne County men in the Michigan regiment. They arrived with a full regiment, thousand strong and clean and new uniforms, brand new flags, a brass band looking fantastic. And one Wisconsin officer wrote home, they are a splendid looking body of men entirely new to the service. Their ranks are full now and they are, as we were, crazy to fight. The welcome was not so warm. Badgers and Hoosiers standing off to the side watching these guys march in. Wolverines would eventually be accepted, but a long way off. For now, they would be known as the big regiment that might be why they were put out front too they had a thousand strong yeah. 50 canadians or, in their in yeah, their team. yeah right yep. there you go but they were also known as the feather beds because they took so long in signing up for the war plus they brought dq gift certificates for everybody too so that that certainly yeah. helps out too yeah well us canadians had to cross the border that's well, that's true it took so that's long <laughs> they've got that border strong now yeah <laughs> So yeah, so they kind of lucked out at Fredericksburg. Yeah. So they certainly, certainly did. What they didn't luck out though was Gettysburg, and we're going to spend the rest of this this battle time here. We're talking about Gettysburg. So everybody knows Gettysburg. We're going to talk about that. And so Lee's second attack north. 
not to spend too too much time talking about the preliminary, but this John Buford's cavalry is going to go west of town. They're going to slow down Henry Heath, try to hold them off. Buford is eventually going to fall back. John Reynolds' first corps is going to arrive. This is going to be with the Iron Brigade. They're going to be told to go pretty much right into battle. They're going to march on the Emmitsburg Road. They're going to cut right across the field, go right in. The second is going to be the first ones in. So they're going to go in first to arrive. They're going to be sent right into Herbst Woods, which is just west of town. I'm sure everybody's been there at this point. They're going to be placed in the woods by Reynolds himself, which is going to be proved to be a bad career move for old Reynolds, right? Yeah. So he's going to be directing the troops. He's going to tell them to clear. he'll regret it. No, I don't think no. he remembers much after no. a certain point. No, I don't think he did. But he's told to clear, you know, clear the woods of them ribs. And that's going to be the last thing he's going to say. He's going to be yeah. shot in the back of the head by a sharpshooter. And it's always a sharpshooter who shoots a general. It's never a general guy. It's always a sharpshooter for whatever reason. <laughs> but that's going to have huge ripple effect throughout the rest of the battle on the Union side. We're not going to talk Gettysburg and the rest of the stuff later on. So, But regardless, the second's going to be in there. They're going to be followed again by these 24th Michigan who's going to be led by a guy named Colonel Henry Morrow at this point. Then they're going to go right into battle. No time to load their rifles. Just run. Just just get your asses in there. The 19th Indiana and the 7th Wisconsin are going to follow. The 6th is going to come here in a little bit. We'll talk about them here in a little bit, but they're going to be, they're going to be coming later. So at this point, you've got 1,400 Union men against 1,200 of Confederates led by James Archer. His oncoming brigade coming through down those Willoughby runs, coming up those uh, across that river, the uh, stream, coming right through the woods. The 24th Michigan is going to get hit really hard right at the beginning. The Columbia is going to be killed almost immediately. They're going to get pushed right back to those woods. Archer's going to learn quickly at this point. Because don't forget, at that point, they think they're still fighting militia. Mm-hmm. Because that's what, when, when J. Johnson Pettigrew came back and said, this Union Cavalry, and he told him, you're drunk, there's no way you that's true with militia. <laughs> they're going to find out now that this is not the case. And there's that quote, that unknown Southern soldier. I'm not going to read it. In, I'm not going to read it in my Southern English here. Oh, come on. But he says, all right, he says, taint no militia. Those are them damn black-hatted fellers again. So they know that they're dealing with the Army of the Potomac and they're dealing with the Iron Brigade at this point. They, they call this the pucker effects, I think, officially, is what they call this. Yes. So, um, <laughs> See, I, would have mispro- I would have mispronounced that. I would call it something else if you're reading it. Yeah, I know you would have, definitely. But, <laughs> but Archer is going to get forced back, pushed back across that Willoughby run. 200 Rebs are going to be caught, uh, including James Archer himself. Archer was a friend of, of Admiral Doubleday who was in charge at this point. And there's that story where they're bringing the troops back to the rebel line, the union lines. And there comes James Archer and he walks by double day, double go double day says, Oh, general Archer, it's a pleasure to see you. And he goes, well, it's not nice to see you. <laughs> he storms off because <laughs> he'd been captured. And, yeah. you know, and so uh, Henry, Henry Heath's second wave is going to go at that point. After Archer gets pushed back, he's going to send in Jay Johnson, Pettigrew, and John Brockenbro, his North Carolinians and his Virginians. Now, there's going to be a lot of guys. This is when Heath really puts all the chips in at this point. He's got Joseph Davis on the other side of the road, and they're doing their thing. But this is really when you get the, the North Carolinians coming in. So you got the 26th North Carolina, led by the boy general, Henry King Bergwin, 21 years old, Mary, just 21 years old. There's a huge regiment. There's 850 guys in this regiment. That's how big this is. And they're ready to fight. They're ready to go. So they're going to approach Willoughby Run from the west. If you've been there, it's just, it just still looks exactly the same as it does today. They're going to cross that stream. And as you cross the stream, there's a, it goes up. Dare I say there's an undulation that goes up. A rolling okay. hill? 
But in that hill <laughs> is going to be a lot of the 24th Michigan, and they're going to be entrenched in that slope, right? They're told by Colonel Morrow, do not fire until they get within 40 yards. So they're going to wait. 40 yards is not that long, right? They get within 40 yards, and these all of a sudden, the muskets flash. Absolute bloodshed. And they're going to get pushed back. They're going to get push back but the numbers do are going to do tell the story here because this huge number advantage so the rebel numbers do eventually push the michigan men back but that spot of willoughby run is a huge huge you want to, it's it's ground zero for civil war combat you're talking about when this is all when this whole thing is over you're gonna have 81 percent casualties in the 26th north carolina and 73 percent of the 24th michigan which is just just picture that i mean that that's insane Considering there are 840 guys in the 26th North Carolina, Henry Bergwin himself is going to grab the colors when he grabs the colors, which is never a good career move, Mary. He's going to get shot in the side oh, and he's going to bleed to death. Just so you know, the, the colors of the 26th North Carolina in this battle fell 14 times. That's how many times it fell and it was picked up again, 14 times on July 1st. And they kept coming and coming. And they kept coming. They kept coming. Morrow himself is going to grab the colors of the Union. And, of course, he's going to get hit. He's not going to get killed, though. He's going to get injured. He's going to sustain what they call a head injury. Mm-hmm. But he's going to... Um, He's not going to die. He's going to uh, he's going to be taken prisoner. So he's he'll be carried off. Nineteenth Indiana is at this point is falling back too. So they're all getting pushed back. And again, at this point, it's a mathematical equation. When Nineteenth Indiana falls back, they're going to expose that left flank of the Twenty Fourth Michigan. So now they got no support. So now it turns into a retreat. So the Twenty Fourth Michigan and the Nineteenth Indiana are going to start falling back to Seminary Ridge. They're going to go up right by the school up there. The remaining Iron Brigade men, they're going to fall back and they're going to start to build defensive positions at the Lutheran Seminary. So they're going to start building up there. The 24th Michigan is going to fall under control by a guy named Andrew Edmonds, who's going to be in charge of it at that point. Eventually, they're going to fall back to the Cemetery Hill. But there's a lot of cool stories that take place at this point that I know you want to talk about. Yeah. Um, well, I know, <laughs> I know, Eric, you wanted to tell the story of Jerome Watrous. Who's- Jerome Watrous. Yeah. yeah, and I I have to I have to credit the writer of this story, who is the writer of just about everything I've ever learned yeah. about the Iron Brigade. That's Lance Hurtigan. He's really really good. Yeah, he's I mean, he tells stories so well that uh, you're just immersed. Jerome Watchers was part of the Sixth Wisconsin, and he's going to be part of this mule train that happens at Gettysburg, which is basically to get ammo to all the men. And he's going to eventually, when he's done delivering all the ammo, he's going to go back up to East Cemetery Hill, where, and I'm sorry, but this is part of the story. He does see Oliver Otis Howard. That will be that name. Who he describes as sitting on his horse as stoic as ever. And he also sees General Hancock, too. So Howard's sleeping. Howard's <laughs> <laughs> not sleeping. Oh, my God. But it is like this crazy story. Like, it, it's like something out of a movie if you read it in um, her hurtigan's those damn black hats his book about the iron brigade he just talks about how like the mules are all like they're having to drive these teams through town and they're like they're whipping and whipping and whipping the mules as they go and watrous is on the horse alongside all these teams that are driving these wagons and they're having to go like hell through town there was one part where the mute one of the mules got his leg shot off and they had to just like cut him away and somehow get the ammo there elsewhere but they managed they, to deliver all this ammo, you know. For the entire division, not just yeah. the brigade. 
it's also Cutler's Brigade as well. Yeah. You know, so back and forth and go. I think if you made a movie and you depict it, it's not believable. The it's just it's so you think after a while you shoot your horse's legs out, you yep. just be like, well, they're just they they have to go through so fast. There was one point where they had to stop, and Watchers is like, no, we can't. We're going to be captured. We got to keep going. Yeah, right. And, and they yeah. had to go, yeah. and and they managed to get it there, and then they have to go all the way back. And when they get back to East Cemetery Hill, that's when he sees all the damage that has been done to the wagons. There's bullet holes everywhere. Like there's shells that have taken out huge chunks of these wagons. And like, obviously like some of the, the men that are driving these mules have, have died as well, but they managed yeah, but to in do the it. Moment, he, he didn't even realize just how bad it was. No, because yeah. you're going on adrenaline. I can't imagine what that was like, but he's, you know, riding alongside and he's just saying faster, faster, faster. And they're just, they're having to whip these mules to, to keep them going to get this ammo to these men. Like he, he said, seeing Hancock at the end of all that, he said he felt so good. He said he felt really like he was really glad to see Hancock on the field taking charge and all that. And he said that he never felt more pr- like, you know, he felt so good in that moment seeing him there. Like the story of Jerome Watrous at Gettysburg is one of these Iron Brigade stories that just doesn't get told enough. I found an excerpt here from his piece here. Then the wagons were out into the open field beyond the seminary building under the fire of at least a dozen Confederate artillery pieces. But Watrous and his train soon reached the area behind the Union battle line where he found regiments of the Iron Brigade and other units. With the drivers rolling the wagons along the line, the extra men tumbled off one wooden box of ammunition after another. Running behind the wagons came Watrous, who used the blunt end of an axe to splinter open the boxes so the bundles of cartridges could be rushed to the fighting men. Three wagon loads, almost 75,000 rounds were distributed, O'Connor said. At all this time, the rebels were shelling us to kill. Nearly every wagon cover was hit with a shell, slid shot, or mini ball while we were there. It's just, I can't imagine. Yeah, it's, it's a great a story. It's almost an Old West scene. Final piece of the story with Gettysburg involves guy we mentioned a little while ago, Rufus Dawes. While everything's going on in Herb's Woods, when, when John Reynolds got knocked down and Abner Doubleday took over, Doubleday was everything Reynolds wasn't. You know, Reynolds was popular. He was he had a lot of things. Doubleday just wasn't. But he did one very smart thing, and that is he kept the six Wisconsin back. He had them lay down on their stomachs on the downside of the slope in front of Herbst Woods, and they, they couldn't see what was going on, but they could hear it, but they were just told to stay there. They were in reserve. While they were down there on the north side of the, uh, the Chambersburg Road now, Joseph Davis's massive, his brigade is trying to flank the Iron Brigade. They're trying to get around them. Dawes is going to basically be ordered to stand up and stop them. So he's going to stand up and he is going to tell them to double quick, full speed across, heading north to stop them. Now, everybody knows the story of the railroad cut. But at the time, there was an unfinished railroad cut that was um, that was in place there. And the soldiers talk about seeing these Confederates as if they were swallowed up by the earth. Because they would run and they would jump into the railroad cut and they would disappear. Where the hell did they go? But, but they're obviously in the railroad cut. So what happened was they would ultimately have to charge them to take them out. They talk about it. And Eric, you do a real good job in your book describing the scene about how they would wait until they shot and then they ran. Yes. Because that's because instead of running into it, they would, everyone duck. It's like when the, the sprinkler goes by. When it goes by, then you take off so you don't hit, right. you know, hit. 
So they run. Dawes is going to get there. It's going to be 175 yards they're going to run, and they're going to lose one man for every yard. They're going to have 175 casualties crossing this part of the field. They're going to get there, and they're going to – what's interesting about the railroad cut is you're either in a great spot or you're a bad spot. There are some places it goes up to your chest, and some places it's 10 feet over your head. So if you, if you were in there like the second Mississippi was – you were stuck, you were too deep. So it ends up being almost like like a turkey shoot kind of. And they're going to ultimately catch a whole bunch of Confederate soldiers. But Rufus Dawes is going to ultimately be the hero of the day at that spot. Along with the 14th Brooklyn, there's some other people that are involved with that as well. But it's that story of Double, double Day's you know, foresight to keep him back. When they certainly could have used the 6th Wisconsin or Herb's Woods, that would have been a disaster because they would have taken they would have been taken from behind. Rufus Dawes, I think if you ask the average Civil War person, this is probably the story they remember the most about Dawes. But he does afterwards, these guys do end up going off to Culp's Hill the next day and helping fight later on. So these guys aren't done. They have their moments, and a lot of people feel that you know Rufus Dawes later on in life was the first documented case of post-traumatic stress disorder. A lot of I've read that in a lot of different books that they think he might have been the first actual case of this. Mm-hmm. Interesting guy, but this is a situation again. He's running across that field, knowing that if he lives, he'll turn twenty-four in three days. That's how young he was at this time. Yeah, it's an extraordinary moment. I think I, I don't. It's his first time actually leading troops in combat, where he's you know, and he. He made that call to charge the cut on his own. That was his call, uh, Dawes' call. He had expected, I believe, the 95th New York Cutler's Brigade to charge alongside him. I would like to know what happened with that. I have never seen a history actually talk about why the 6th charged alone that day because the conversation supposedly was, hey, we got to go. You're coming with, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, Yeah. that kind of thing. And let's go. And then the 6th just kind of went off on their own. And then the 95th, the, the next thing you hear about them is that they were helping mop up the prisoners, but not. But it is very clear that 6th made that charge on that club all by themselves. And after Gettysburg, the Iron Brigade really is kind of never the same after that. I mean, the battles do take their tolls. They are going to get split up. They're going to lose their Western status here soon. There's going to be the 167th Pennsylvania is going to be introduced to them. And they're kind of going to get split up amongst the, the four winds of the earth as it goes on. They will have representation right through Appomattox, but I think Gettysburg was was probably their final hurrah as far as the, as far as you know that type of brigade that really does a lot. But I think when you look at some of the brigades that have fought in this war, I think when you think of just tenacity and just pure brute force and just will, I think they're always they're always going to be the first one that comes up. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that there are Western soldiers fighting in the East away from home. They found themselves in every brutal battle for the most part, but they seem to get through it. And they're going to do it again. Yeah. And they're going to keep going. They don't back off. Uh, And yet uh, there really isn't, you know, you don't hear that much about them later on. Mm -hmm. And I think mostly because the numbers are down so much. that Do they lose their status as the Western Brigade? Because I have read that. Like, is that what it's considered? That because their numbers are so low and they become part of the Pennsylvania. Well, they, they end up losing their, yeah, their identity, even as regiment. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the casualties first, you know, for, for the whole civil war, the casualties are staggering, but for mm-hmm. the, the iron brigade at Gettysburg, my God, 
In the 6th Wisconsin, 420 men made the charge in the cut. So only 240 of them made it to the cut. Of the 33 men in Company K who made the charge, only 8 were fit for duty after the battle. 77% of the men in the 2nd Wisconsin at Gettysburg ended up on the casualty list. The 24th Michigan would lose 363 of their 496 soldiers at Gettysburg. That's 73%. And it's amazing because they only had 496 there's still the new regiment. They don't even service for six months, and they're already at that at the beginning of the battle. Wow. Okay. On top of that, the officers of the brigade were were hit especially hard. Following the battle, Colonel Rufus Dawes, who had just led that charge, he was the only field officer who was fit for duty, not only in the sixth regiment, but in the entire brigade. Wow. So again, they had held or lived up to their expectation. They they mm-hmm. held the ground in which they had stood and annihilated in the process now, you know. So and then to, to add to the to the wound a little bit, their their actions would be kind of forgotten because of the twentieth Maine on the next day and Pickett's charge on the following day. And, yep. You know, so and, and especially since that ground on the first day was lost after but but the fighting's gonna continue for two more years. And they're they're in it right through to Appomattox, are they not? Like they are, and most of them are gone by there, uh, you know, and there are there are two excellent books in Wisconsin here that I, I can get access to. I can't check them out of the library. They're referenced, mm-hmm. and they have to stay there. One is Wisconsin in the Civil War, mm-hmm. and it just lists everybody who is ever, all the rosters. Oh, that's okay? cool. Where they signed up from, rank, whatever. And then also discharge information for each soldier. So it tells you, you know, they served their, their time served. They're out in like '64 with their time served. The three-year enlistment is yeah. a, a lot of, but a lot of them signed back up again. You got to wonder but, if it's uh, just because they just because of who they were. You know, they seem to have like yeah. this kind of patriotic sense of like we have to end this somehow, right? You know, you, just, uh, yeah. Just going back to Randall's that? speech. Just going back to Randall's speech, like right. bringing yeah, it full but, circle. I wonder how they how they read that. If they were really inspired by that, or if it just seemed like political bluster. Yeah. It could have been gone either way. The identity too. So yeah. the second Wisconsin would end up becoming the Wisconsin Independent Battalion on June 11th, of 1864, and they would serve as Division Provost until November 30th, or when its survivors would merge into the sixth Wisconsin as Company H. So the second, guys in the second ended up joining the sixth. But then the sixth and seventh Wisconsin regiments would end up mustering in July of 65. The seventh Indiana regiment would merge into the 19th Indiana on September 23rd of 1864. And then the 19th Indiana would merge into the 20th Indiana and leave the Iron Brigade on October 18th of that year. So you see that. They're losing their identity. Yeah. And I think that those veterans that are still around, that's that's gotta be a painful thing. Mm-hmm. Two more years fighting the battles of wilderness, Pennsylvania, Weldon Railroad, Hatcher's Run. And Appomattox as well. By Forks even. So yeah. yeah so well, what do you got, Darren? Yeah. They no, it's just it's just an interesting thing. It's, I always found it interesting that, you know, they they held that second Wisconsin papers in exactly three years, you know. June 11th, 1861, is June 11th, 1864. And they said, three years, you're done. That's it. Yeah. You know, they, they, they shut it down. They, they held it for three years, which I always thought was kind of cool. But I think it was, um, I, I think it's an interesting thing how it went. But I think it does, when you, you don't want to sit there and talk about the romance of war or stuff like that. But when you think about that, 
on on that type of field, you, you definitely think about about those black hats. You think about those what those soldiers must have felt on the Confederate mm-hmm. side, seeing them coming. Yeah. Because you, there was an intimidation factor built in just by seeing them, and you could see the pride on the Union side with that. That you, you know you you had to earn that status. Once you got it, you had to maintain that status. So it was a self fulfilling yes. prophecy all the way through. As they went through general after general, you know, going from Gibbon to Meredith and all the way down. But they always seem to maintain that, you know, that that status. And even afterwards, when they did get split up and they got separated, you know, they always they always maintain that pride, no matter what, no matter what and where they ended up afterwards. They were always the Iron Brigade. Yeah, that was that was always a thing. Yeah, Gibbon that, was quite proud of having been with them. You know, he struggled to leave when he was given a higher command, like promoted in late 1862. And he would be invited to the reunions. And he said, a judgment day, I want the Wisconsin men with me. Yeah. Yay, on Wisconsin. Yes, he was accepted by them for sure. So just to start wrapping up here, Eric, quickly, why the Iron Brigade for you? What got you into them? Mickey Sullivan. Yeah. Mickey Sullivan, this man right here. All right. I'm actually glad you really didn't have him, by the way, because I was nervous for a second. Yeah. An Irishman (laughs) in the Iron Brigade. Yep. An Irishman in the Iron Brigade. This is the Civil War Memoirs of James P. Sullivan, Sergeant, Company K, 6th Wisconsin. I read this. This is, well, it's, it's. Edited by uh, William Begoe and Lance Hurtigan again, you know, he's, he's the man. But So I don't really remember the order in which I, I mean, the Iron Brigade, Civil War fascinated me, so the Iron Brigade did. But then this book was the one that made me want to advocate for the brigade. We don't teach it anymore today. And he had, he had trouble in his own time in the 1880s, and he became the advocate for the Iron Brigade, for well, especially for the Sixth Wisconsin, for for both in both veterans' rights and also for recognition of what the brigade had done in the Army of the Potomac when Eastern uh, writers were um, kind of omitting them from histories. I took up that fight to teach it to people that live in Wisconsin because they don't even know. And Mickey is a great example of iron. Man was wounded at South Mountain and he lost half a foot. Okay. And he was sent home to Boston to convalesce and he was discharged, gone out of the army. He hated life so much. And all he heard was, this is him talking, not me. Women complaining about the price of calico and thread mm-hmm. and um, other vets claiming to have, you know, killed the whole, captured the whole Confederate army. So he, he signed up again and he went back with the sixth. He took a round in the shoulder at Gettysburg, convalesced again, signed up again and was wounded again at the Battle of Railroad. You know, fought for the rest of his life just to be mobile and get around and he tried to farm and you know, so his story it just fascinated me, and then it, it it represents the whole brigade very well. So let's let's if we're going to wrap it up, we let's talk about the numbers with casualties because this is where it's stunning to me. It's long been reported that two of every three soldiers who died in the Civil War did so because of disease. In a war that saw a two to one ratio of disease versus battle related deaths, the Sixth Wisconsin experienced three point one. Battle-related deaths for every death in disease. The second Wisconsin, 3.4 battle-related deaths for every death due to disease. The numbers in the 7th and the 19th are similar. And as for the 24th mission, the last regiment of the Iron Brigade to see a battlefield for the first time, numbers still lean in the direction of battle deaths to disease deaths. That regiment saw 1.4 battle deaths for every death in disease, in large part due their heroic stand on that first day of Gettysburg. 
Well, it's an amazing story. It's one that's great to be studied. So yeah, um, but I think it's a great, great time. We did, we did the the boys justice today. I think we did. Yeah, and I just want to uh, say, like all our listeners, like if you haven't read Black Iron Mercy yet, read it. And Dim White Light, I like that one too. Yeah, they're both like definitely <laughs> very read different them. from each other. Yeah. yeah, they are. But yeah, Black Iron Mercy is it is one of my favorite historical novels about the Civil War. It is an amazing story and. uh it, it's not just writing about battles. It's the story of a man named Arliss. And it pulled me right in from the beginning. And yeah, it made me cry. It made me laugh. It made me angry <laughs> at some points. Yeah. Um, kill Violet. Kill Violet. You're giving it away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Spoiler. We'll just edit that one out. Um <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it is it is really a story like to start, you know, it, it's a good way to start learning about the Iron Brigade and what they experienced. But yeah, I think we've told their story. Thank you so much for joining us, Eric, for this. You're welcome. Can I can I talk about one other thing? Yeah, of course. Please. Uh, yeah. And I apologize for this, but I wanted to talk about the letter writing during the war mm-hmm. and and that the, the common thing that I have found from guys writing letters home or to wherever those letters are going. Here, here's a, this is a Henry uh, Matrov the sixth writing. We had an awful hot time at Gettysburg, but it does seem that I was the luckiest fellow in existence. There were men falling in every direction around me and the best hearted fellow in our company was killed right close to me, so near that he nearly fell on me. His description is in line with most other accounts of the first day at Gettysburg. That's really as deep as he gets. Mm-hmm. Nearly all literate survivors of the battle would write to someone about their experience, but few, few go into gory detail. Only a veteran can describe the real horror of combat. So, you know, that civilians will never understand. They'll never emphasize. They'll never see how war really is, right? This effect was multiplied in the days before mass media and photography and, and you know, when you just couldn't even show somebody. Yeah. But how does one sit down and compose a letter and themselves after spending nearly an entire day killing the enemy and watching those around them become maimed and killed? Major Rufus Dawes says, this is 1862, my dear mother, I have tried in several ways to send you word of my safety. We have had a terrible ordeal. We were in battle or skirmish almost every day from August 21st to 31st. Our brigade has lost 800 men, our regiment 125. The country knows how nobly our men have borne themselves. I have been at my post in every battle. Now, Dawes, even in mentioning the losses in terms of the numbers, he keeps the horrors of the war masked behind mm-hmm. cold figures and the gallantry of the regiment. After the Battle of Weldon Railroad, Mitral would write his parents, quote, I take this opportunity to tell you that we had another battle, or rather a series of battle battles since I wrote to you and that your unworthy son, by the watchful guidance of Providence, is still left alive and well. I will not go into a regular detail account of the battles, for I haven't the room or time. That is the most common excuse in letters for not telling them of the battle is time. Yep. Yeah, Sherman actually does that in some of his letters, too, to his wife as well. Yeah, it's never about time. In nope. my mind. I don't, you know, it's, oh, I got to move on here. Here's a letter. I'm well. Yep. Uh, no, Sherman does it, too, and he... Like I have a book of his letters and he's writing to his wife, but then he's going the same day writing to his children and then writing to his brother as well. And he's always saying time, you know, always blaming. Yeah, I got I got to go to child or whatever it is. 
Yeah. That's it. So, so it's a great, great talk. I thought I think it was great. Eric, it was always a pleasure to have you on. We'll definitely do this again. But yeah. It's a great topic to talk about. I think people get a kick out of this. And so, um, so what's next, Mayor? Next up, we are going to be talking about um, probably bucket list items of the Civil War that we want to see, or just mm-hmm. things we've done on battlefields. And then we're going to be doing an episode about sacred cows of the Civil War, both good and bad. So we'll leave our listeners to ponder that one. And then we will be getting back into Vicksburg part two. And then we do have our round table. Well, it's going to be tomorrow night, but by the time this episode drops on Saturday, we will have had our latest round table. But just a reminder, our other book club is coming up at the end of June. We are reading through the heart of Dixie by Anne Sarah Rubin. If you want to be part of that, just send us an email info at civil war breakfast club.com. Okay. And you can join up on things on the horizon, as they say. So, I guess we have a lot of things to look forward to as we head off on the great blue yonder here. So off we go. So Eric, again, great time. It's great time to talk, but it's great to, you know, be dreaming about black hats and long frock <laughs> coats tonight, but that's okay. But it'll be fun to, to think about that. So Mary, any final words from you? Nope. Everybody have a wonderful evening and thank you again to Eric for joining us. And we will see you all again soon. Oh, Doing your again. usual peace out, Darren. Peace out. <laughs> good night, everybody. or good morning, everybody, because this drops on Saturday. So see y'all later. Yeah, let, right. let my dad know that I wasn't drinking beer at nine in the morning. Okay, I will. <laughs> anyway, guys, see you later. Bye. All right. Bye. Peace Bye. Out.